You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content director at the AAC. Pete Takeda might be new to editing accidents in North American climbing, but he's not new to the climbing game. With decades of experience and with actively developing a database of all of the climbing accidents that have been submitted to the publication over many years, he wields a unique level of knowledge about accident trends in climbing. In this episode, we sat down with Pete to talk about the process of selecting the stories and analysis for the accidents publication each year, trends in climbing accidents that Pete has noticed through his work, including many that the climbing world has been ignoring for far too long, and the bravery of submitting a report in a world that loves to critique. Well, well, welcome to the podcast, Pete. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I've been a climber for, I think, yeah, over 40 years, and... I started off as a bouldering, as a boulderer when bouldering was not a cool thing. And I kind of progressed through all the aspects of climbing. That's like rope climbing, top roping, um, trad climbing. Uh, before there was such a thing as trad climbing, there was no <laughs> distinction. You know, big wall climbing, sport climbing started. We got into sport climbing. Uh, and then I later on went uh, to become an ice climber and a mixed climber and a comp climber and that became an alpinist, and now I kind of just do whatever I feel like. <laughs> Is there any type of climbing you never really did? Uh, I've never climbed an 8,000-meter peak, so that, that's kind of one of my bucket list things. I'd like to do an 8,000-meter peak, yeah, just to kind of get that experience, whether it would be an alpine-style thing or an expedition, you know, with you know fixed ropes and all that, camp, fixed camps, I'm fine with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really don't have a an axe to grind in that area. So cool. And you were recently in Peru. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> this is my first year editing accidents in North American climbing. I was under the tutelage of the, the, the great, uh, Dougal McDonough, who, you know, is a, is a real gift to, uh, you know, our climbing world and certainly our climbing writing and editing world. But still, despite all that help, it, you know, it was barely all consuming to get this book edited and out the door and I think we, we shipped it off and I I think two days later or a day later I'm on a plane going to Peru. Peru was great you know I had a little trepidation about well how am I going to deal with uh, my risk exposure in these life-threatening situations after having edited over a hundred sometimes uh, very graphic gruesome accidents yeah. and I found that once I started climbing it's like wow I'm just climbing and, you know, I wasn't flashback or thinking about, you know, what the worst case scenario was. I was just the same old climber climbing up a mountain. And so, so it was, it was good. It was a relief to know that this, this job in a way doesn't have a, a negative effect on my performance. So, yeah, I definitely was curious about that. I mean, just reading it, I was like, <laughs> I wonder if this is going to just reading it would have an impact. Whereas like you were editing it and thinking about it for, hours on end. Tell us a little bit about the process of putting accidents in North American climbing together. Like, what is it like soliciting stories? Do stories just come to you guys? Do you look for people to tell particular stories that you hear accidents about? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. You know, there's no set system to acquiring, like, 
these accidents, acquiring the data or getting the reports. Some reports we have are submitted by an official entity like uh, the National Park Service or uh, the Alpine Club of Canada, for instance. There's some places like Mohawk Preserve back east where they'll actually send us reports. And these vary in the amount of detail provided and the amount of specific material that, that we get submitted. So, you know, I think to, to, yeah, to kind of make things uniform and, and readable by our audience, you know, it, it takes varying degrees of editing. Some of the reports we get through volunteers who scan the internet for any mention of like an accident that's related to climbing. These are, you know, it's quite a bit of legwork to trace those down sometimes, you know, uh, so once again, it's like varying degrees of detail that get included. Some are from news reports, but some of the best stuff we get is from a link we have on the AAC website where people actually fill out a form that asks for specific information, and then they get to report the narrative of their accident. So what we get is anything from one sentence to, uh, you know, three pages of, <laughs> you know, first person to, uh, you know, sometimes we get two pages of, um, officialese kind of language in the report. Yeah, and so also I guess part of the question is, I'm sure that you get way more accident reports than actually go into the book. So what is part of the selection process? If the audience has read Accidents in North American Climbing, they know that it's broken up by region. So that's probably part of the selection process in terms of having a variety of stories. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a good analysis. We do, uh, when we go through the selection process, kind of break it down, yeah, into region regions because you want kind of that representative set of incidents to uh, to kind of show what some of the specific risks are to a specific area. Seasonally, you kind of want to do things too, you know, if it's a winter report, like an avalanche or, you know, a mountaineering accident, that kind of thing, you want to get a balance of reporting there. What, what I saw this year, and, you know, this is my first year editing, so I don't have anything to really measure it against is, you know, we're, we kind of go more into genres in some areas like bouldering or indoor climbing and especially indoor climbing seems to like transcend like these geographical regional regional boundaries obviously because there's gyms everywhere so we try to get a good mix as Dougal pointed out to me too it's like every accident we report it's kind of a, a complete narrative so kind of a complete little story unto itself in other words there's a setup there's a certain introduction of the people involved there's the circumstances of the accident you know there's the outcome and then you know there's an analysis so you know at the bare minimum the ones that we choose to report they really require kind of a, a complete set of information and a lot of reports we get you know you don't get uh, an age you don't get a gender you don't get like some of these details that might be withheld because you know, people don't want to include that in a report they're writing, or if you get stuff sent in from a state or federal agency, sometimes there's the HIPAA boundaries that they have to put on that information. So we definitely try to, to edit and, you know, publish the reports that are, you know, have that complete set of information. How often do you follow up with, um, you know, eyewitnesses or, um, or people who are reporting and talk to them like one-on-one, or does it tend to be in a written format? I try to reach out to most accidents. Like the ones that get submitted by a correspondent, they're usually responsible for the line of communication. So, you know, if 
the correspondence sends in six accidents. I'll fact check that information and uh, I'll have them fact check the, the final product through whatever source they got it from. Sometimes I'll end run someone if I feel like, you know, the volunteer is too busy and I'm just not getting the speed of communication. But everything in this book has either been fact checked with the person who experienced the accident, a witness to the accident, or the person reporting. If, if it doesn't meet that criteria, like, yeah, we, we just wouldn't publish it. Mm -hmm. We would put that material into the database. So a lot of stuff that we get, we just put into the database because the information is so uh, skeletal that there's not, not even, there's no one you can actually track down to, to actually talk to. So I think, I think that's really important. Like, it's refreshing to know in this day and age where the truth is up for grabs that people actually put in the time to fact check. Okay, I guess related to that, I'm interested then in like kind of the dichotomy of potentially engaging in pretty emotional conversations um, when you're interacting with somebody who did experience a pretty traumatic event or accident. But at the same time, a lot of the, you know, the reports themselves are not emotional. And so kind of what is that like to ex like experience just as a human being? Yeah, like, like we try to stay like as journalistic as possible. And we don't want to editorialize nor judge. We want to deliver an analysis where it's possible. You know, there, there's been times like I'm reading something and you just, you just want to cry or you just start crying. You read the details and it's like, oh my God. Some things you end up, I mean, it's just like anything else. There, there's humorous sides to, to the way some of these things get presented. And sometimes you just laugh, you know, because you hear about you know, someone poking fun at themselves or, uh, you know, they, the fact that they just recovered and they got back into climbing after something horrendous, like it, it, it shows the, the real power of this activity we love. You know, sometimes I just, like, I'm just amazed and in awe of, it's like the way the community at the crag gets together to help someone. They all sacrifice their day of climbing, you know, to, to help a fellow climber out. You really get to see, I, I feel in some ways, the best of, of the human spirit in editing these. Mm. Seldom do you see something where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. These people are so stupid. Or, you know, they, they just, they got what they deserve, that kind of thing. You, you just don't really see see that. There are there are a couple ones, I think if people read this year's where they'll be all, oh my God, I can't believe these people did that. Um, <laughs> The thing, like like personally, I experience is there there are very few accidents that you'll see written up in this year's book, which I think is emblematic of you know the last five years. It's it's kind of a very similar range of things. There are very few accidents that that I haven't either witnessed or been a part of. I look back at my climbing career. We taught ourselves everything we know, and not only would I make a fundamental life-threatening error once, but I would go out the next weekend and do the same thing, and finally it's like, oh, that's why in Royal Robin's basic rock craft, they tell you to do this instead of this. So, you know, when I, when I read some of these things, I'll, sometimes I'll have a dialogue with a climber, and they might be beating themselves up about, like, 
making a stupid mistake. I don't know, man. I remember when I did that. I got to tell you this story. And I'm not telling it, you know, to go, oh, yeah, I've experienced that. But I'm, I'm just telling them, I go, even the climber as experienced as myself made a similar worst error. I just got lucky that my partner didn't get killed or I didn't get killed. And so what, what editing this book actually does for me personally is it makes my experience, the triumphs, the tragedies, the funny things, the stupid mistakes I made, it makes them relevant because I can actually have a dialogue with anyone out there who, who suffers an accident. I can go, yeah, I understand that. And I just don't, I'm not understanding it on a rational, like, you know, textbook level. I understand it from the rational level and the visceral level. I know how these mistakes get made. I, I know what the repercussions are. I know what it's like to you know, suffer injury and tragedy and, and make stupid mistakes. And so I think, uh, I, I'd like to think in my own way, it's, it's a way that I can uh, return a little something to the community. And it makes, I mean, there's nothing like making what you've experienced in life relevant and helpful to others. It, it kind of makes it all worthwhile without that. I think we just have a bunch of random experiences and then we die. It's all meaningless. But if you're able to share with compassion, suddenly everything you've done like, has a purpose that transcends your own life. And I think that's the only meaning we can have. Everything else is kind of just you know, random or selfish and acquisitive. And we have to be that way in life for a while, but fuck, I'm lucky. Right? <laughs> I, I survived and made it. And, that experience, and by God, I can, I can share it on one way. So, was there anything that surprised you in the in this first year of this process? Yeah, you know, I used to read this book. You know, I think it, it sat in the bathroom, which is where a lot of these things sit. It's like bathroom reading. But yeah, I used to read these things. You know, especially when I was starting to get into climbing, and so I, I got a fairly, you know, I, I think a wide perspective on you know, what used to get reported a lot, what you used to see a lot. And, and so these days, I don't know, that's a tough question, like surprising stuff. But one of the things I notice is we have a lot of bouldering accidents and I get the feeling that the vast majority of bouldering accidents don't get reported. So someone falls, they twist their ankle, you know, they hobble to the car, they drive home. You know, they self-medicate, they put it on ice or whatever, and that's it. End of end of story. I do think that bouldering probably accounts for the majority of actual accidents that occur in climbing. That's because of the user numbers, the number of areas that people boulder in, and also the fact that every fall is a ground fall. The ones that I saw that that were reported. Yeah, it, you, you get the sense of how serious the injuries are. I mean, we had one that we featured in the prescription that it's just like, whoa. It's like I saw the pictures and I'm like, wow, every, every boulder and every climber needs to see this picture to understand what the risk is. You know, this guy had the, I think it was his tib poking out of his ankle, you know, and his foot's completely displaced and it just looks like something out of a, I don't know. <laughs> it looks like something out of a horror movie, to tell you the truth. 
and um, there's a lot of serious, I think, injuries that occur in bouldering. I think it also has probably an untold impact on healthcare because to have a, an injury to your ankle requires so much rehab and so much, uh, you know, you got to get an MRI, you got to get x-rays, you got to go to PT, all this stuff. And because it's not a fatal accident or it's not something where someone fell a hundred feet and, you know, like bashed their head or something, I, I think it doesn't get that much attention. Well, but I would argue that as far as the people who suffer from these accidents and, the amount of like rehab and cost it is. And it's not just cost to healthcare, but it's also cost to the user's time in the sport. You know, you're taken out of the sport for a long time when you're rehabbing from an injury like that. I bet you it's the most impactful thing in climbing. Like here's a great anecdote. Years and years and years ago, I was interviewing Yvonne Chouinard for a magazine article. And at one point I asked him about what he felt the impact was of modern sport climbing, gym climbing, and bouldering were to the other facets of climbing. And he kind of tongue-in-cheek said, well, son, you know, it's not real climbing without risk. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I go, have you ever had like a serious accident? He goes, yeah, this one time I broke my ankle and I was out for like six months or something. And I go, oh, well, how did that happen? And I expected to hear some story about, you know, taking a big whipper on El Cap or something. He goes, well, yeah, it happened bouldering. So in, in his own roundabout way, you know, Chenard himself, I think, not just the, uh, it's the seriousness of, uh, of bouldering. So. Yeah, I was, I guess, interested in maybe speaking to specifically the types of accidents that maybe are occurring more or that have like stopped occurring um, in specifically trad climbing or in specifically alpinism. Like I could see a version of um, like, if you really study the data where more alpinism accidents are about conditions being really unstable these days. And so I, I'm interested, interested is like, is that intuitive idea that makes sense? Like based on the data? I think so. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have a, the, the best handle on the data. This is my first year doing this. So I've, I've actually looked at the tables from last year and this year, you know, informally just to get an idea of like where my chart should for this year should, should lie. In other words, like, you know, it should be fairly similar as far as type of accidents. I would say, and this is anecdotal, that we are seeing more accidents in big snowy mountains due to conditions that in some ways are affected by climate change. And we see this mainly in the bigger ranges, the Himalayas, for instance. You know, we just don't have the data for it, but I bet you if we, if we did a, like the research in that area, um, yeah, that's what you would find. I do know anecdotally from going down to Peru almost every year for the last 15 years, the, uh, the accidents we're seeing there, because it's a, it's a large glaciated range that's near the, uh, the equator, yeah, we're seeing horrendous accidents there. It's like mass casualty incidents in which, you know, a part of the mountain that for decades was deemed safe and was safe. We're seeing, you know, avalanches. We're seeing avalanches in which the, the snow actually rips all the way down to the rock. We're seeing that type, you know, and it's hard to, it would be really hard to make a, you know, some quantifiable argument that there are this many deaths based on this exchange in temperature, but you, know, you, you can't argue with the fact that the mountains are way more unstable, but established routes are, you know, falling prey to, 
type of hazard that you didn't see 10 years ago. And there's a real human cost to these things. I do a lot of new route exploration in the Andes. Finally did a, a, new, a new significant route last year or this year. But I noticed going into these ranges, you can go to the same route for two years in a row. And it's hugely different because of the recession of the glacier, because of uh, massive seracs falling. And what this does is it, uh, it makes your approach hazardous. It makes your route through the glacier very hazardous because it's falling apart. Um, partner and I tried, you know, a specific phase twice. Well, actually, we tried two different routes over the course of like four years. And each time we went, the approach would be really safe. And then the next year, it would just be this horrendous lake. You're, you're risking your life. There's fresh avalanche debris. And it's not just snow avalanching, but it's the Serac fell or the ice face collapsed. You see stuff like sun cups, you know, these massive uh, penitentes coming out of the, uh, the snow and ice. You see the black carbon deposits in the bottom of the, these sun cups. You look back at a face over 20 years. I do a lot of my research down at the American Alpine Club Library, and it's a marked difference. You know, you can see a, a clear difference, you know, in these. Uh, in these faces and on these glaciers. So, yeah, what, what we're seeing, it's a little bit off subject, is, yeah, it's, it's the, you might do a first descent there and you might be doing the first and last descent. I think what's going to happen is uh, if we, we're going to see a shift from, I, I think, the popular outings in a place like the Cordillera Blanca. Um, I, I just think some of these snowy peaks are just going to get more and more dangerous yeah, year after year. I think that the plus side of that is, you know, hopefully the guiding community and the commercial aspects of climbing down there, they're going to shift to these rock objectives because as the glaciers retreat, the approaches are going to get easier to some things. You might see big rock faces exposed, but certainly we're going to see people going more after the, the, the big rock objectives because they're just inherently safer. Want your own copy of Accidents in North American Climbing so that you can learn how to stay safe out there? At the American Alpine Club, we want to give the best belay to our members. We're all about giving you the resources and supports so that you can worry less and climb more. Join the club or renew your membership and access publications like the Accidents Book, as well as rescue insurance, gear and gym discounts, and many other benefits. Join or renew today at AmericanAlpineClub.org learn more. Yeah, I guess this leads me to a question um, potentially about kind of the whole swath of stories you're picking from, not just yeah. what actually ends up in the accidents. But I'm interested in like kind of if you could guesstimate how many accidents that are you seeing that come from lack of knowledge, improper use of gear, that sort of thing versus conditions, things that you can mitigate, but like are also somewhat out of your control. You know, I would say that we do see a lot of accidents these days uh, that are a direct result of inexperience. And so what we have is like, as a new climber, everyone like learns to climb in the gym. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. you know, the gym is the most revolutionary thing actually that happened to climbing, I think, since, since probably sticky rubber or the bolt. You know, the, the plus side of that is that, you know, we have these incredible athletes.
athletes who are just incredibly strong. They know how to move their bodies, and you know that it's just there. You know, there's a huge mass of climbers now, and so it's almost like genetically, people can be so. It's it's a wider pool of selection. So yeah, these it, it's it just raises the the technical and physical standard of climbing across the board without a doubt. If you go anywhere else, like if you go to Europe. There is no distinction between a trad climber, sport climber, boulder, or indoor climber, or alpinist. It's like the alpinists I know from Europe, they're good at everything. They, they don't bother to, to nitpick, as we tend to do in America, between these different genres. To them, it's all just climbing. And I, we, would, we would be really well served to, to view it in that way. What I do see in America is, well, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, people who, you know, their experience with assessing a route is based solely on a number. And even within rock climbing, you know, there's so many variables and so many, you know, differences between the styles that you could climb 5.8 on a sport route and it's easy. You might not be able to climb a 5.8 slab or you certainly might not be able to climb a 5.8 off of. They're, they're as different as apples and pears, heads of lettuce and that. But what I'm seeing is that yeah, people go out and they, they get in over their heads without knowing it. They don't realize that you know, there's this whole apprenticeship they have to serve to gain the experience to do something you know, safely and also to assess risk. There, there were a bunch of incidents in Canada where people ended up calling for rescues on these routes with a real low grade, like 5.6, and they're like 5.12 climbers outside elsewhere, but they had no idea what they were getting into. They had no idea how to deal with loose rock, with big alpine terrain, you know, with the weather, all these all these circumstances that they just can't teach you in the gym. And what happens is it exposes the rescuers to a tremendous amount of risk trying to get them out of a, a situation because you know some of the, in some cases they're good enough to climb into a really bad situation. But it's high enough and remote enough to where to extricate is a completely different you know, story. Um, I mean, I see that a lot in uh, domestic accidents. There's you know, people taking leader falls where they couldn't get gear in, where if you're some savvy old climber, you, you know how to place the gear, you know all the little tricks. And that's an experiential thing. I see a lot of transference from you know, gym climbing to outdoor sport climbing in which the anchor at the top of the route doesn't, is, it could be some relic from the 90s. And so there's, there's uh, you know, mistakes people make in their, their process and procedure and their communication, lowering off. We see a lot of those. I mean, one phenomenon I see mentioned a lot, and we actually directly address this in a feature in this year's book is, there's a lot of climbers, there's a lot of professionals, there's a lot of people with families, and they're all climbing, and they all watch YouTube, and they all get a notion about how, what they're going to be able to do, you know, uh, I watched Alex Honnold on this thing through Solway, and it's like, oh, well, great, or, you know, the Olympics coming out, everyone is like, you know, they, they get pretty, pretty gung-ho about what, what they're going to go climb outside. The thing that they might not have is time. And that's time to get the experience, time to be ready, time to account for all the things you have to do to, to climb safely. Um, some people are in a rush, like 
multiple times I'm reading things where it's like, we're in a rush because we have to get back to work on Monday. So, you know, I forgot to do this or, or that. It's a pretty common thing I see is when people try to cramp career and family and into uh, things and, and they end up uh, yeah, making fundamental errors. Sometimes they experience the pressure of crowding at a crag. They want to get off the route in time to allow other people to climb it. Um, sometimes they want to set up another person's rope so everyone can top rope a route. And these actually lead to, to, to some ser really serious accidents. Now, the other thing I see is, um, yeah, there's just a lot of people at the crag. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to be all-inclusive and invite, you know, 20 of my friends and their dogs to the crag. Creates distractions. People, you know, they, they mess up leading. They might keep going when they should retreat because they feel the pressure of the, the crowd. There were two incidents that really, it just breaks your heart. One was a was a guy who, yeah, he, you could tell he was kind of new to climbing. He was doing everything right. He was standing at the base of the crag. He had a helmet on. This was actually in Clear Creek. Got struck by a rock. They assume the rock was generated by a climber on an adjacent route. This person wearing a helmet, the helmet was crushed, went into a coma, and they, they had to take him off life support like a week later. And, you know, there's a couple lessons there. One is that you kind of got to have the awareness, even at a sport crag, of, there is this possibility that I'm going to get hit by rockfall. And as it turns out, it was not a climber who knocked the rock off, but a crag had been bolted and established that's at the bottom of a bighorn sheep breeding ground. And a friend of mine actually considered bolting that crag and said, no way, I'm not going to do it because he had seen the bighorn sheep and saw the rockfall. And so when we go out to do a public service and to crag that's done with the best intention but you know if we don't spend our time there and you know observe the situation like we might not know that it's it's the base of a bighorn sheep breeding ground and i worry about this stuff because it could happen again if someone doesn't read about this accident they could just be standing there and the bighorn sheep are up there doing their thing by no one's fault you know there's a tragedy occurs you know another one was it was a, a crowded crag in the Pacific Northwest, so I'm sure they were enjoying a not so common day of really good weather, but there was a, a child at the base and got hit by a rock, and, and thank goodness the child survived, but I don't think the kid was wearing a helmet, and you know, you don't expect that to happen. It's not that the parent is being at all irresponsible or negligent. It's just like, wow, who could have guessed that someone was up there leading and pulled the only loose rock off and it happened to hit the kid? So I think as we see crowding at the crags, we have to watch out for the distractions created by it. I think that it's people cite this, this whole thing about, oh, my friends and their buddies were down there, so I didn't want to come down. I just kept going. We saw a bunch of accidents like that. You know, the other thing is like rocks being, you know, rocks being dropped, gear dropping, you know, a climber hurtling through the air and landing on top of someone. That happens. So I just feel like... Um, one of the things we can convey to people is just because there's there's no such thing as strength in numbers when it comes to an accident. And, uh, people should kind of be as aware as they can, you know, even in a, a safe feeling situation like that. I agree with the crowd. I actually, well, yeah, I wanted to bring up the helmet thing because it does seem like more and more I've seen accident reports that part of the analysis is 
they did have a helmet on and that is the only reason they didn't have like a major like a major traumatic brain injury but also like you're saying the situation in clear creek and another person died i think in lumpy ridge this year and because of rock fall and i think there's like mitigation tactics of being at a crag where like the base of the crag is not a safe place yeah an acquaintance of a friend of mine i think she got killed up at the Estes. And that's a situation where, yeah, it's a, it's it's fresh. That semi-alpine rock, it's just loose, and there are a bunch of people climbing the same route. And, and yeah, you know, someone by no fault of their own was hit by a rock that was pulled off by someone by no fault of their own either. I mean, I, I have a thing. I'm kind of old and crusty and kind of grumpy, but I just if there's a bunch of people, I just turn around and leave. I'll go to the gym, you know. But I think I have that option because I travel a lot and also I've climbed so much rock outside that like, I'm not really accruing a, a great deal of experience by climbing in certain areas. Mm-hmm. So I have the option to, to walk away. But I do think that in your choice of route, you just got to remember if you work nine to five, you're on the weekend and you're in a popular area, even in a place with as much climbing as Colorado, Chances are, it's you and 30 other people have that same notion. We want to climb a certain type of route of a certain grade, and we want to do a four-star or above route. <laughs> it's like, this is the stuff that, that invariably happens. So, yeah, wearing a helmet, I think, is great. I think we all should enjoy the experience of climbing, but it, it is contingent upon us to be aware that even in the happiest situation, like, a bad thing can happen. And with the number of users out there, it is so elevated. Like uh, you're you're not putting the risk in your own hands or your partners, which is the way it was in the old timey days. But now your safety is contingent upon the conduct of everyone else around you, and they might be careless. They might not know any better. They might be just you know so enthusiastic and happy they're blind to to the possibilities. But in general, if it's got loose rock on it, I need climbing underneath something. I, I will wait for another day or go to the gym or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it seems really serious. I also was wondering, are there many reports about simply just like gear failure? Is that ever like an element of the accidents you're engaging with? Yeah, you know, we have, we have some... Uh... <laughs> Something's reported as gear failure, but invariably it's the type of thing that could be mitigated by um, more proficient use. There, there was one instance, like I kind of hate it to bring up specific instances, but you know, we had an accident reported where the person was climbing, was in the crux, placed a piece of gear, did a good job placing the gear from all accounts, didn't like the move with that one piece of gear and so they retreated like that's a smart thing to do if it's over your head you retreat the only trouble was is they only had one piece of gear in and they made the mistake of weighting the piece of gear and the piece of gear broke the rock and they fell to the ground they hit the ground you know they were able to 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 get out on their own power and you know it was a relatively minor injury but the two things about it is it was reported as you know gear failure. There's nothing wrong with the gear. It did what it could do and the rock broke. So one could say it's the fault of the or it's it's the fault of loose rock. That that's legitimate. But what they didn't do is they didn't put any gear below them 
And I, you know, I looked at the pictures and I go, wow, the, you know, there's a bunch of placement opportunities. So in this case, I think it was a misplaced sense of security because gear is so good these days that that one piece would hold the fall. And if you're an old guy like me, you live by the maxim of try to always keep two pieces between yourself and the hospital. And sometimes you have to violate that rule. And yeah, sometimes you pay the price, but as a principal, there, there's no reason to, to not put a piece of gear in when you can, especially if you're entering a situation where your, your well-being is going to be dependent on a single piece. I mean, I saw this in ice climbing. I remember telling all my friends, I go, okay, you did the crux of the ice climb. You're about to clear the bulge. Always put a screw in. And they're like, why? I just did the crux. I go, yeah, because that's the crux. But, the, the, but it's the moment after that you're going to fall. And that's where you move your feet over from an overhang or, or vertical and you're moving it onto the slab. You can't really kick your crampons in. Your feet skate. And it, it's where I read about two instances where there was a fatality because that's what happened. And a friend of mine took, took that to heart. He had done, you know, fairly hard ice leave. He was, was all elated and stuff. So he puts the screw in, you know. It's like, I did the crux, but, you know, I'm going to follow the rules and put the screw in. He puts the screw in, clips it, gets above, forgets that the pommel of his ice tool doesn't have a spike, spikes it down onto the ice and falls off. Bent the screw. Probably saved his life, though. So... There's a million and one little tricks one acquires through experience. And those are the things that only experience teaches you. The one thing I see, the I, I think it's an indirect cause for an accident, is there are so many instructional videos and there's so many best practices that get pushed out there that... I, I see people get confused. I remember two instances in reporting this year where someone with a very simple lower up on a sport route used a really sophisticated system to set up an anchor that was either equalized or it disallowed running the rope straight through the anchor, which, you know, if you're top roping with 20 of your friends, you don't want to do that. But I think in this case, if you're just lowering off, you just thread the rope lower off done, you, you pull the rope, that's fine. But I think they're probably listening or hearing a couple different rules and they probably watch a bunch of different instructional videos and they made a system so safe that when they lean back, they, they came unclipped and hit the ground. Or they lean back and they had been taken off belay because the communication got garbled with you know, all this extraneous stuff. So. You know, I would say in the era of YouTube and in countless books, it's like if you're going to watch one channel or, or watch a bunch of these things, just stick to that one guide you, you trust or just keep it simple and err on the side of safety. It's one of these byproducts of this age of like, like information overload and you know, copious bullshit on the Internet. <laughs> I have people come up and go, what do you think of this system? I go, I don't think about that. I got a way that I do things and I'm always willing to learn. But something that's too complex or poses like a solution to a problem that doesn't exist, like I'm just not going to listen to it because you can only have so much crap in your head. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. Like, 
know, and it's kind of simple. But I'm interested in, and I think maybe we've addressed this already, but the types of accidents new climbers get into versus the more experienced climbers. What kind of accidents do experienced climbers get into? Yeah, there, there, there were some dramatic accidents with really experienced climbers, that, and that involved like avalanches, pretty, pretty major stuff. You know, I'm just going to go off tangent, like, you know, there's some accidents in here that, like, you, you just read about it, and you're like, oh my god. You just admire the heroism of this person experiencing this accident. Like, here's an example of this lady climbing in California. Her husband was climbing a route. He was leading. It's a tragedy. He was putting gear in, and he noticed that there was this spontaneous rock fall occurring. So he yells, rock. He clings onto the rock. His wife is with her two daughters at the base. So she's trying to shield the daughters and also keep her husband on the way. Like, this stuff just makes me cry. It's like, uh, she ends up getting hit by the rock. She doesn't like, I, I don't think she lets go of the rope. Her daughters are okay. It's like, here's a picture of it. It's like the rock, like, severs her, her foot. And, and she just has this, uh, I don't know, she must have this self just this resolve or this, you know, self-possession. She pulls the, her, her foot up, or her her uh, her foot out from under the rock and holds it up. Like, yeah, it, it's just. And then there's a picture of her with uh, her artificial leg, and she's kind of smiling. She's oh like, my god! She's like, that's the rock. Wait, so it actually like severed her it leg. Severed her leg. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah. And they kept their. You know, they kept their shit together and self-rescued. Right. And it's like, there's a couple of these self-rescue incidents that, you know, read about. It's just, God, they, uh, it's just, uh, you can't teach that kind of, you know, like self, self-determination. Like, you know, we kind of live in an era where everyone kind of, some of these accidents, people just call for rescue for reasons which, you know, they might not be in the most emergent situation. Then you have people who, like, they're like, oh my God, like I just had my leg cut off and I stopped the bleeding and you know, now we're gonna figure out how to get to the car to drive. It's just it's just like you're like, Well, these are the people you want by your side in the foxhole when the shooting starts. You know, one thing I admire too is uh, you know, it's just the courage it takes to report some of these accidents. There there's an incident where, you know, this guy was um taking a young climber out to mentor him. And he's just sharing his knowledge. He's like super uh, well-traveled and, you know, accomplished and, you know, what would, uh, climber who has a wide range of uh, you know, um, experiences to share. And they end up, you know, climbing this route and he puts in an anchor, equalizes it, does everything right. And his friend wants to repel off because his friend hadn't repelled that much and wanted that experience. And so he goes, yeah, sure. Sets him up with repel. The young guy's repelling down. His mentor leans on the anchor that he placed, and the thing pulls out. And his friend gets killed, and the mentor survives. And, you know, the, the, I think the one thing that's harder than actually experiencing an accident, you know, is to, to be a survivor. And for this guy to write the report, to send it in and, and, you know, expose himself to so much, like, self-imposed guilt. Mm. It, it takes so much courage to, uh, you know, to send something like that. My hat off to someone like this. Because 
you know, it, you, you get this chance when you're editing and you have this dialogue with people, it's like, you know, you almost get to, to just share some knowledge because, you know, I've had quite a few friends die and I've been on, you know, some situations where you're either, you know, helping the person out or you're recovering the body or whatever. And the thing I will say is these, these things are accidents. And I think if whether you survive an accident or whether you're a bystander who witnesses an accident or you're the person who is supposed to be in charge of the situation and someone has an accident, the thing to remember is what was your intent on that day? And I say this to people, I go, well, you didn't intend for your friend to get killed. You didn't intend for yourself to take a 30 foot whipper and break your ankle. You didn't intend to, you know, expose anyone to risk. You were just sharing this, this beautiful, powerful thing we call climbing. And I think that's the thing to remember. And I, I will say to the audience is that anyone who has been witness to an accident, anyone who's been party to it, in other words, you know, it's like your friend who got hurt or killed, or whether you suffer an accident, you know, we don't like to use the term victim, but we do like to remind people that uh, if you're at all party to it or witness to it, yeah, you're the one who has, who has suffered this, this harm, this hurt. And you should be very gentle with yourself. You should uh, not default to kind of analyzing what you could have done different. Because in the end, it doesn't matter. In the end, I think it takes courage to share these things. Because that's an actual preventative measure from other people experiencing the same thing. So I would say to the people out there who do have accidents, it's submit it. And submit it on the link on the, the AC website. And, you know, it's, it's one way that you can take something that could be really tragic and turn it into something that's positive. And for all the people out there who pass judgment, you know, on these, you know, people who suffered accidents, it's like, well, you shouldn't celebrate, you know, the pain of other people because that's just, it's, it's what small people do. So... You know, the joke with accidents back in the day was it was uh, the Journal of Schadenfreude, which you know, was taking taking uh, pleasure from the, the, the misfortune of others. And, you know, I think that there is a morbid aspect to, to this. Like, we all, in a way, are drawn to, like, reading about things like this that happens. But I do think that this should be kind of like an informative tool. And I do think in the direction we're trying to go with you know, going back to all the print journals and creating a new set of data points and kind of going through all these and mapping it out over whatever, since 1951. I think one thing we're trying to do is create create this database that's relevant to help instruct people. And I think there's elements of it that, like, you know, might affect, like, insurance underwriting and, you know, risk assessment, like all these things. Awesome. Well, I was also, I wanted to specifically ask about kind of when the wolves come out in social media, like, especially when we post a prescription, yeah. because you were talking about a lot of like the heroism and like the, that it's not someone's fault if they're involved in an accident, like should not place guilt on themselves. And I'm just interested in like, is there ways you're thinking about communicating or just maybe elaborate on the element of a lot, especially a lot on social media, it seems to be that people want to prove that they know better than the person who experienced yeah. the accident. Yeah, you know, I don't, like, I haven't posted on my Instagram for a year and a half, so I, I don't really pay attention. I 
deleted my Facebook account because I just think, you know, so much of what's wrong with our, our culture today, you know, is you could directly attribute it to what Facebook has created. So I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I tell you the truth. I don't read this stuff, but I would say this, you know, having been a person who has taken great glee and misfortune of others as, as a young man, I think that's human nature. So, you know, that, that's forgivable in a way. I do think that posting on social media with like, you know, uh, some, some negative thoughts or criticism, it's like, well, do you want to just be heard? Is that your problem? Or, or do you have a solution? I think some people have a solution, but you know, to be part of a solution means you got you got to put the work in. So you got to do stuff like, I don't know, like the volunteers are the antithesis. They're the people who don't want any recognition. They don't want credit. They want to do what's good for other people, and they do it, you know, virtually anonymously. Social media is the opposite, in which you have these people who are relatively anonymous, who in some way must need the attention. And so the best way they can figure out to do it is, is to become a critic. And the thing is, is, it's easy to be a critic. It's hard to create. It's hard to do something. It's easy to critique what other people do. Any other like trends and accidents that come to mind? You know, back in my day, we used to climb unroped all the time. That was just part of what you did to be a rock climber. Do wall climb, do track climb, do boulder, do you free solo. You had to do it. Or you couldn't hold your head up in the parking lot at the end of the day. But what I see these, and you know, back then, the logic we live by is no one has ever died free soloing. And no one actually did. You know, the people who, you know, free soloed, they were good climbers on relatively hard routes. And they just had it together enough to where, you know, they had the judgment and experience and know-how. To, to not get, not, not suffer injury or I guess it's fatality. These days, it's like, like I remember the first free solo death, like real death. I, re I remember when that happened. I was like, whoa, like the spell is broken. Like the stuff can actually kill you. And these days, I can't tell you, I mean, there must be six or seven free solo accidents and you just would have never have seen that like 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Maybe it's just there's so many people climbing and uh, proportionally, there's that many more people free soloing, mm. but there's just that many more deaths and, and near fatalities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reasons we all love climbing is because it's very real. It's not like something you negotiate. You don't hit the reset button. It's not like a, a video game where, you know, you, you buy more tokens or, or whatever. You know, it's real. So mm -hmm. that's why we like it. And anything that's real has a consequence. And if if we are put ourselves in a position where we override the consequence or, or undermine it through whatever like mental machination or emotional machination we go through, it's like, well, this this is the thing that happens, you know. Yeah, people die. And I think it, it used to be, a, you know, like I go out free soloing, there's no one else around on free soloing. These days, it's like people just free solo in front of everyone. And it's like you got to consider, well, what kind of example are you giving? Which, you know, it's still up to the individual judgment whether they want to participate in that. But the thing is, is whenever someone dies, they leave a emotional and physical mess behind. 
And that's the thing we have to consider is like, yeah, you know, it's this free spirit thing. Like I'm an individual, you know, I'm doing my own thing, climbing. But the thing is, is it affects everyone who uh, bears witness to that. And mm -hmm. if someone is like, like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like you got to consider other people in this whole thing. I, mm -hmm. I think if we really thought about others, you know, <laughs> The world would be a, a simpler, much better place. That said, you know, I've done some pretty ill, <laughs> ill, ill-informed things in front of a lot of people. That's because I just, I just wanted to show them how rad I was. <laughs> so you know, I can understand all that. But you know, I go climbing with kids sometimes, like eight-year-old, you know, like really young, like friends, you know, friends that my niece or you know, their friends or whatever. And they go, do you free solo? I go, no. Have you ever like almost gotten killed? I'm like, no. They go, have you ever been sponsored? I'm like, no. Because you don't want to like lay out this like like any any of these things is not a path to success. It's just a path to wherever. There's a dead end at the end of every road. You just don't want it to be a literal dead end. So I want to remind the the people is I I get queries all the time about. Can they access my database or can they get an analysis of, of this or that? And I want people to know that this, we operate on a, like a low, low, low five figure budget. And right now it's one guy and that's me editing. And you know, I think it's, I think it's great that the AAC is taking this off of Dougal's plate in a way and, and actually, you know, giving him the resource to have you know, someone do some editing. But I also think people should know that like it's entirely volunteer like the people who write their accents in that's voluntary the incredible group of people who do the reporting across the country you know some of them are just private individuals who climb and you know are want to give back to the community and they do this painstaking reporting like you, you can it's like, you know, if I had a limitless budget, I couldn't pay these people enough for their, their time and energy. You know, we have people in the government, you know, federal or state uh, agencies who do this reporting. And it's not part of their job description. It's not like, well, Bob, you know, we want you to, to do all this accident reporting. It's like people within the organization go, wow, this is important. This is my community and I'm going to report this stuff. So, you know, I, I, I think in some ways we punch well above our weight as far as the, the exposure that we get, but this is all, this is all pretty much a, uh, it's a, it's a volunteer enterprise. So, you know, I want to say thanks and I, I can't do this enough. I, I try to do it every, every time I communicate, you know, our uh, reporters and correspondents and editors is, yeah, just, I'd like to thank them. Like, Without them, this wouldn't, this wouldn't be possible. I think without me, someone else could do my job, but I don't think you can replace the volunteers because you gotta love this. You gotta, you gotta love your community. You gotta really, you gotta really wanna do this for no other reason than you're giving to the community. So thank you guys and gals and everyone in between out there. Hey, well, thanks, Pete, for being on the podcast. That was great. All of your insights were super informative. We hope to have you back on soon. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate, uh, appreciate your time. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. You can find films, articles, podcasts, and more on our stories page 
at AmericanAlpineClub.org stories. Delve into the policy, climber education, and community issues that are impacting climbers like you at AmericanAlpineClub.org stories.